Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in Singapore for this episode. It's the day after the F1 night race, and I'm catching up with Michael Massey on the 37th floor of a hotel by the track. His story is a good one, and it's not widely known. An Aussie who now has one of the most important jobs in world motorsport, in a game that is filled with egos and intense politics. You'd be forgiven for thinking, wow, he suddenly burst on the scene. But it's no overnight success story. Massey is one of the hardest working people I know. Incredibly thorough, big on detail and widely respected, especially by the old guard. The role of Formula One race director came about at the beginning of the 2019 season, following the sudden passing of Charlie Whiting just days before the Australian Grand Prix. Whiting was part of the fabric of F1, much loved, and he'd been in the job for decades. Incredibly tough circumstances to get the call up, but Charlie, among others, had taken him under his wing, and Massey's diverse apprenticeship included the GP feeder categories Formula 3 and Formula 2. Australian motorsport is rightly proud of what Michael's achieved. He really has come a long way from the suburbs of Sydney. Grew up in Western Sydney. Um and probably the type of cars varied from around where I was. It was very much the, uh, let's call it the old Australian muscle to a degree. <laughs> is probably what a, are we talking, Kingswoods and Tiranas? We're talking <laughs> Kingswoods, Tiranas, uh, XC Falcons and, uh, you know, GT HOs and things like that. Um, and then uh, from the other side, uh, sort of the aspirational cars of... Uh, looking at Ferraris and uh, Lamborghinis and uh, the sort. So I wanted to expand on the aspirational stuff because yep. your Uncle Rudy runs Piccolo Scuderia. Certainly did. He did. Fitzroy Street in, in Marrickville. Um, Tim Jardine, a, a mutual friend of ours who's a producer in motorsport television, reminded me while we were here that he said it feels a bit like a Marinello mechanic workshop when you go in, in there. There's sort of an old, older style one with, with Alphas and Ferraris and things like that. Just describe it and, and how often you would go in there and things like that. Yeah, certainly. Um, so that was very... When it existed at the time, it's no longer around. Um, but it was very much an old-school workshop. Um, Rudolph was... My uncle Rudolph was an amazing mechanic um, and I was in, going in there doing all the administrative side of things. Um, side of it, these are... These hands aren't mechanics hands, I'll be the first to admit, yeah. um, probably like yours. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I was in there every day uh, doing the administrative side of that business after I finished school and uh, while I was still at um, college. And, yeah, it was it was good. It was very much the old school um, little workshop. And, yes, Tim Jardine used to come in probably every couple of weeks and uh, sit down around in the... Um, lunchroom with the boys and uh, we used to have a hamburger and chips and uh, solve the problems of the world. <laughs> he remembers that fondly. You've ultimately ended up in, in Formula One, the, the dream for many people. We'll chart more of your, your career as we go in this discussion, but what was your first 
F1 experience, even if it was a, as a little tacker? Can you tell me where you were? Or hundred percent, I remember it fondly. Um, was Adelaide nineteen ninety two, the Adelaide Grand Prix, uh, and finished uh, my school exams. And mum, as a uh, surprise, um, said, "Right, we're going to Adelaide for the Grand Prix." So. I literally finished my um, my exams at school that day, and off we uh, off we went to Adelaide. You flew, you drove. What'd you do? Uh, no, it was a bit of a mixture. So, um, Mum and my grandfather, my late grandfather, drove to um, Griffith to break up the trip um, with a family friend of ours at the time. So the three of them went in the car, uh, and. Because effectively timing-wise, I ended up uh, getting on a little uh, egg beater <laughs> aircraft uh, to fly from Sydney to um, to Griffith to meet them there, and we had family there, so we stayed there for the night, and then drove from Griffith to Adelaide and stayed with family in Adelaide for the event. Yep. And uh, yeah, remember remember it fondly, sitting at the uh, end of the Bravham Strait, um, right at what is now Turn Nine in the supercars. Uh, event, um, left-hand side in the grandstand, watching uh, the Adelaide Grand Prix and having uh, grandstand passes, doing pit walks in the morning and uh, things like that. Um, you remember being in awe of the cars and perhaps the drivers? I was absolutely in awe of the cars, the drivers, the event, the noise. Um, I remember having a, a Sega Game Gear at the time <laughs> with the uh, television tuner because you couldn't actually there weren't big screens weren't as sort of prominent let's call it back then so sitting there in my uh grandstand seat and watch the cars go by and then you've got your little uh teleportable television at the time which now seems antiquated um to watch what was going on and keep on track what was happening with the rest of the event so you know i was very very fortunate that um i have and have always had the amazing support of my mother and that was sort of the real first formula one Experience. She was there with you at a very important event at Albert Park this year, I know, and she's a she's a great supporter. Kelvin O'Reilly, former boss of Super Touring in Australia and a long-time successful motorsport administrator who we both know heads up karting Australia these days. He recalls this pesty kid around 1995, 1996. I think you might have still been at school. And I think you had this dream of trying to put together a two-car alpha team in Super Touring. And he reckons it about... 3.30 most afternoons after school <laughs> would wrap up. The call had come through. You had all sorts of questions. How close did you get to stitching that dream together? And what were you endeavouring to do? Were they, were they cars that Gabrielli Tarquini had run in the British Championship? And what were you doing? Um, so basically it stemmed from my uncle having started his workshop. Um, and yes, I was still at school. The aim at that point, I think it winds back to the start of uh, 1995 where, scarily, shows how long I've been around, that I recall you being a pit lane commentator <laughs> at the first round of the Australian Manufacturers Championship at Eastern Creek, now Sydney Motorsport Park. Wearing a crook jacket and tie, probably. <laughs> Wearing a crook jacket and tie um, for that first event, which was effectively the advent of what was ultimately super touring in Australia. And uh, together with my, my uncle was doing some work for one of the um, teams at the time, which was Peter Hills with the Ford Sierra. And had started his workshop, and the uh, it's like I think we can do something here. So it was sort of, you know, the height of super touring, um, particularly 
the British Touring Car Championship under Alan Gow's stewardship. It's like, let's try and make something happen here. So I was, uh, I think, uh, off air, Kelvin and others might describe me a little bit differently, but uh, I think pesty uh, little kid from school and... Yeah, I was just. You meant that in a in a term of endearment. I reckon 100%. in a, in 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 an, in an entrepreneurial way. He was really impressed that this young teenager had had this vision and was was endeavouring to stitch this thing together. No, absolutely, and it was sort of uh, you know meeting different people at the events. Um, you know the events that were in Sydney at the time because '95 was in year 11 at school, um, so second last year of school and. Yeah, it was sort of trying to endeavour to keep pushing and um, having a look. Um, I remember doing, you know, on be it school days off or student free days and bits and pieces, going to um, sponsorship meetings and the like of, and putting together sponsorship proposals and all of that element, um, even through 96, to be honest, which was my last year of school. And, yeah, when the the Alfa Romeo side of it didn't quite um, come together and, you know, that included the likes of another mutual friend of ours in Peter Adderton and going through to promotional partners in North Sydney at the time. And, uh, you know, I was very, very lucky to meet all of those different people. Ultimately, none of that occurred, but, um, you know, meeting effectively Kelvin and Barbara at the time who have and are still are... Um, very dear, lifelong friends. I call them my Gold Coast family to a degree. He, when we were chatting for this, he more or less welled up. I think he thinks of you a bit like a, another another son for him. I mean, you lived in the house for a few years and worked out of the office there in an, in an admin sense. So I, want, I want to get to that. What I'm intrigued about at the moment is that, that on the either the sponsorship chasing side or working in almost a kind of gopher capacity when you were a youngster 100%. there, you know, you know, setting up the scales in pit lane and working with teams and things like that, you you, you made yourself an invaluable part of the framework. You'd probably argue that no one's indispensable, I know, in, in, in your mind, but, but you did. Everyone would go, oh, Michael does that. Oh, Michael does that, you know, and so it, and so it would go. Unlike a lot of kids, though, who probably dream of being... Uh, 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 Lewis Hamilton or whatever, you, you had obviously in your mind thought you wanted to either get into the, the administration or the, or the business side of the game at a young age, did you? Um, yeah, so going back, I originally thought um, once upon a time, I've always had, obviously had a passion for motorsport from yeah. a young age um, and loved it. But I originally thought, funnily enough, that I actually wanted to be a chef. <laughs> yeah, quite. And then uh, my mother was working in a um, Lasanne's restaurant in Sydney in Brighton. Yeah. Which at the time was a beautiful restaurant and uh, magic location, magic location on the beachfront there. And so I was doing some waitering on weekends, effectively as any fifteen, sixteen-year-old kid does to earn a bit of pocket money. And very quickly worked out, uh, having seen the boys in the kitchen, that um, I enjoy cooking for my own personal well-being <laughs> and uh, not for hundreds of people a night. So that uh, that thought very quickly went out the window. And actually, um, my original part was I thought I wanted to be an engineer because at that point, well, motorsport, the only pathway in is uh, to work on a car and the family side of it of working on cars. So I thought that's where I want to go. And uh, 
very quickly realised at school that uh, physics and chemistry were not my forte. <laughs> um, so from there, you know, morphed into, had a look and Kelvin, to be honest, was a key influencer in this, in saying, well, there's more paths than just the engineering side. Um, there's the businessy side, and I really enjoyed the marketing and promotional elements. And yeah, once I finished school in '96, uh, um, I did Asia Pacific marketing at um, at TAFE. Mm-hmm. And because there was no, the only event management courses at that time was at UTS in Sydney, if I recall correctly, and you effectively needed uh, doctor's marks in the HSC, um, which were in the late 90s, and that wasn't me. Uh, So the only course that was the equivalent at that point was um, a sort of a marketing and promotion course. I did Asia Pacific Marketing at Meadowbank TAFE in Sydney. Fantastic. And which was worked out extremely well because it was a four-day-a-week course, so Monday to Thursday. Um, Mondays didn't start until the afternoon. Thursdays finished at midday, so it didn't impinge on the voluntary side of what I was doing um, in super touring with, uh, with the Ford Mondeos at the time, uh, that I could effectively go to the events, do what I did, and it was literally it was a fully voluntary capacity. Yes, my flights and that got paid for and accommodation at the time but as a you know 17 18 year old kid um yeah it was for the passion of it and learning and meeting different people and you know i was i was very fortunate and in this business and i think you and most others will agree the the people that you meet and the spectrum of people that you meet from all walks of life um is amazing um, so, you know, I was fortunate enough even here to catch up with Terry and Lurleen Morris uh, for breakfast. And Terry was, um, you know, t- absolutely. He was the chairman of Toker Australia, um, obviously better known as Paul Morris's dad. Um, but, you know, between Terry and Peter Adderton at the time with Kelvin as the CEO, um, you know, the three of them, I would say, uh, were huge supporters in those early years, uh, which led to ultimately in... At the end of 1998, um, working with Toka because I had become that much of a pest, to put it in uh, in Kelvin's words, uh, that they offered me a job. So my first event with Toka Australia was actually the Macau event where I think eight or nine super touring car teams um, from Australia came to do the Macau gear race, which was all of the super touring cars from around the world. <clears throat> And I had uh, negotiated, I met a gentleman by the name of Max Kingston, who was at ANSET at the time, uh, and negotiated a su- significantly discounted deal for all of the team, all the Australian teams, um, to go to Macau. Amazing, mate. We've actually just uncovered a little something that you and I share. We've gone completely different paths in motor racing. You went to Meadowbank and did, for international people listening to the podcast here, think of TAFE like like college, I guess, in some respects. Yes. I did a similar marketing course, not Asia-Pacific orientated. You were at Meadowbank. I was about 15 k's up the road in the Hills District doing a, a similar thing. I'm a little bit older than you, but we have gone on to to different paths. I want to get to the admin stuff a bit more in a, in a moment, but let's finish up a bit on that early... Uh, race team, if you like, involvement. Mm-hmm. Firstly, you mentioned the Ford Mondeos there before. Were they ex-Andy Rouse cars? Can you recall, was it a car perhaps raced by Paul Radisich? What was the history on that one? <laughs> yeah, there, so there was a... Um, the Mondeo, so in those days, were 
um, they're actually ultimately all Andy Rouse cars uh, early on. And those cars then went to America for the North American Touring Car Championship or Super Touring Car Championship. And Peter purchased the three of those in the, let's call it, older style Mondeo look. And for 1999, I think it was, that um, they got facelifted, let's call it, into the more modern look, um, and which was, you know, there was ex-Paul Radisic World Touring Car, well, World Touring Car Cup at the time, I think it was, that won. Um, so those cars had some amazing history uh, behind them, and I even remember the internationals at Bathurst during the, the Bathurst 1000, when it was in the Super Touring days, looking at them saying... Um, because they were in the new shape, yep. saying, hold on, these cars have got the front engine Vs. These cars just don't look like what we built um, <laughs> when it transferred from um, Rouse's to West Surrey Racing. And that was because it was effectively the the hybrid <laughs> um, look version, version. But, you know, that was, that was a, a good, fun time and very grounding. You know, I met some amazing characters working with likes of John Patchos and Barrel as he's yes, affectionately yeah. referred to and that and you know met some really cool people along the way. From an open wheeler perspective as well if memory serves did Rudy not have a Formula 3 team and I reckon Peter Hackett drove for, for you guys at, at one stage too didn't he? Yep we um so with the Toka side of it when I was working with them uh that was a part-time basis so I was actually based out of um my uncle's workshop in Sydney, which is where I did his administrative side of it, as well as working for Toka on a contract basis. And we ultimately, once the whole Alfa Romeo um, and then, you know, at one point Ferrari uh, team with, which we were trying to set up at the similar sort of time, was sort of the two consecutive projects with running a 355 Ferrari in the Australian GD Production Championship under Ross Palmer's yeah. uh, guys. And uh, he was like, okay, haven't got the finances for that. So then in, I think it was 98, 99, really, um, we ended up getting a Formula 3 car. And um, Peter Hackett came to, um, you know, sort of got to meet Peter early on. And um, Peter drove for us and we did a, a, let's call it a shortened program in 1999 for when he had the budget to do it. And through 1999, he um, he met Betty Klemenko and Daniel, um, if I recall correctly, at a um, at a Porsche driver training day, and they got on extremely well to the point that the last round, um, Betty came out, which was the first time that I had met Betty at the time, and. Uh, I think Betty will recall this one vividly, as do I, that the two of us were sitting on the uh, on the steps of our trailer, yeah. um, devouring a bucket of KFC chicken at the time. <laughs> um, and you know we've you know still get on extremely well to this day. Betty and uh, Daniel are amazing people, and you know now the owners of Erebus, yeah. but at the time it was um, it was the Cactus Group that was. Uh, on the Formula 3 car and ultimately we won um, the inaugural um, Australian Formula 3 championship um, with Peter in 2000. Uh, and then that team uh, went on for another three or four years and that was sort of what I would 
argue was the strength of um, Formula 3 in Australia. Um, yes, it was a generation behind what uh, England and so forth was running, mm. but it was built in that way. And, yeah, you know, there was a strong rivalry between us at Pickles Area. There was, uh, you know, BRM, Bronte Rundle, um, with Ian Richards there. We had Sam Astute, so all those guys. And, you know, there was 20, 22 cars of the day and um, sort of that front pack of 10 to 12 cars competing and then there was the gentleman drivers who were literally there having fun and um were great and yeah another sort of career defining moment uh, one could say so what was the point where you went full tilt i love the team stuff i i enjoy being around the cars but i can see my future being in the in the admin side and can you recall that that moment uh, yeah it was probably um, doing the elements with Toka um, up until Toka effectively or Super Touring in Australia finished and um, I quite enjoyed that side of it um, so it was, you know they were all part-time jobs effectively that I was gelling together to, uh, to try and earn a living. Were you jack of all trades? Were you immersed in rule books? What were you, what uh, were you, you, there was, there those, was sponsorship stuff too, those, wasn't there? Yeah, in those early days it was very much sort of the, the sponsorship marketing elements um, that were a part of it, uh, but you know, Toker in those days um, was hands-on. Hands mm-hmm. Everyone got into everything. Um, yeah, we had the the Amore brothers, um, uh, Grant and Carl. We had you know Pete Greville, and there was it was literally it was a small team of people that um, that did everything. It wasn't there was no room for preciousness, let's put it that way. Um, the only thing that we were a hundred percent certain of is that uh, when it came to packing up we uh, put Kelvin in a darkened room because he used to uh, that wasn't his forte. <laughs> but not from those sides it was very much it was a rounded experience is probably the best way to put it. Uh, and yeah it was you know from there Toka finished up Concentrated on the uh, the Pickler side of it um, with Rudolph in through 2001. Um, continued doing some elements with um, with Kelvin at times on different conferences and that, that he was running. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, Kelvin started with Tiger, who was the 75% shareholder in Supercars, so the teams group at the time. He gave me a call and, oh, we used to chat regularly anyway. And then we were chatting one day and um, he said, I said to him, I said, oh, well, if anything comes up or that we can work together with, um, let me know. And I think at the time he got the approval of the uh, the Tiger board to employ someone um, because he had succeeded Wayne Katak, um, in who was doing that dual role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, I think there were, if I recall correctly, it was Gary Rogers, Brad Jones were two of the board members at the time, Mm -hmm. um, effectively gave him the budget to employ someone. And I moved from Sydney to the, uh, to the Gold Coast and what was going to be a a six month contract. And I ended up living up there for six years. Amazing. So that, you know, then opens the doors in some ways to the, the next level you, you are dealing I think 
when I spoke to Mark Scaife for this, he can you know fondly <laughs> recall this period and some of the people that were on the Tiga board back then. And he he sort of laughed and said, you know, you want to talk politicians? I mean, there were, there were some serious operators in Australian motorsport, and they all had different sort of ideas and agendas. It, it must have been quite an eye-opening thing for you, but one that clearly maybe you were to begin with, I don't know, but one that you clearly weren't daunted by. Um, I think outwardly. Mm. Didn't look to be daunted by internally. Very. Very. Um, but no, when I joined Tiga as, um, you know, as effectively the assistant to the GM, um, it was a wide varying role. And it was a time in effectively where the teams um, were looking after their parts, the supercars side of it. And you know, sitting in Tiga board meetings where, you know, effectively you're looking at some of them are your childhood heroes, heroes to a degree, yeah. being Larry Perkins, Mark Scaife, um, Mark Larkham sitting in there, you know, then Ross Stone for a period. Um, and, you know, the, the list goes on that here are people that, you know, as a kid are legends of the sport and sort of between on the phone to them for work purposes and that. And, yeah, it was a defining moment, but also a um, ultimately became a, uh, a bit of a challenging one. And it's funny you mentioned Mark, is that obviously with the, um, the collapse of the Walkinshaw Empire at the time mm-hmm. and Tiga had uh, what was established was the Tiga Tribunal, which was effectively the the dispute resolution mechanism within the um, what was the team's licence agreement now known as a REC mm-hmm. um, for commercial contractual purposes and the three gentlemen that sat on that tribunal were it was chaired by Gary Conley who's one of the Formula One permanent uh, chairman uh, the FIA World Motorsport Council member for Australia so Gary was the chairman Bob Glinderman um, who previously um, was heavily involved uh, at Shell mm-hmm. um, and was also one of the directors, well, became a board member at CAMS and the vice president at the Confederation of Australian Motorsport um, and Adrian Simons who was a lawyer from Brisbane and they were the three members of the Tiga Tribunal and the so I was, my role sat as the secretary of that and you know, my first sort of real part with um, with Mark came about in the whole investigation into the the Walkinshaw group collapse and then the Holden intervention and so forth and that was um that was some tough times at that point because that went on for probably you know probably a good two years and you know getting uh the old legal letters at uh, five to five on a Friday afternoon the famous legal tact that took place uh you know there was the HRT Holden Racing Team side of it with Mark. There was PWR with Keys Wheel, and there was um, the dealer team with John and Margaret uh, Kelly at the time. And going through, you know, doing that whole investigation, I can say Mark and I laugh about it now. Um, and he even recalls it. Uh, remember sending some very strongly worded letters uh, assigned to me, but obviously it was part of, you know, at the end of the day, it was part of my job. I was there in an administrative function and they were protecting um, what they had to do. I think both you and I have worked with him long enough to know that in those tough moments, because he is such a, a 
uh, a, a thorough, a competitive human being. That, that ironically, in those tough moments, sometimes you that that's where you earn the greatest respect from him. And I and I think I can see that in your case. We won't we won't get delve too deeply into that that um, the Walkinshaw story because I think people can find that if they want to and, and go back on it. But w- what I will share is a is a little fun moment in relation to it. And and Kelvin. Kelvin says there was two years, he reckons, worth of work that you you both did. You knew it intimately, he reckons, that even Mark says the same now, that your work ethic, mate, is remarkable. You'll often work 20-hour days to, to get it done. It's been a hallmark of, of who you are. But you rock up with two cases full of notes, I think it was, to the to the tribunal. I, I, I don't quite know the story here, but I think one of the lawyers wasn't articulating themselves too well. Kelvin kind of took the helm at, at one point and someone rolled out the great Jack Nicholson line, didn't they? You, you can't handle the truth or something like that. <laughs> they did. Um, that was actually Kelvin rolled that one out on the very, uh, in the very last moments of the tribunal hearing that um, was taking place um, at Gary Connolly's office, funnily enough. Um, in the boardroom there, it was two days um it was actually i won't forget it because it's how i spent my birthday <laughs> was sitting in a tribunal hearing that year um but yeah it, kelvin did roll that line out which was like you sort of had to take a moment and go you did what <laughs> but um no it was don't get me wrong those times at that time were extremely full-on for all of us um you know, including the three teams involved from a TIGA perspective, um, you know, in those days, I would say, that HRT um, was the, the let's call it, it was the team um, from all fronts. And, you know, it was it was pretty intense because that, it did, it soaked up two years of my life um, in a large degree, as well as that of Tiger and a little bit of supercars. It was a major sporting story, not just motorsport story at the at the time. You you have talked a little bit and highlighted kind of mentors for yes. you. I, I guess Kelvin is clearly one of them. Absolutely. You've worked as GM for Scafi with various enterprises that, that he's involved in and, and clearly have a good relationship there. And, and Gary Connolly, who is so well regarded in, in global motorsport. Three very different characters. How have they impacted on you and, and what are the learnings that have perhaps helped you to this day? Um, it's probably... There are there are three of a, a few, to be honest. Um, so, you know, I've been very fortunate that I count all of my various people as mentors. Um, there was Graham Fountain, who was the CEO at CAMS, who sort of taught me an element of, um, of the way of dealing with things. Um, obviously... Kelvin's been a huge influence, particularly when it comes to regulation writing and understanding regulations, which is completely his forte. Uh, Working with Mark as um, general manager of his business since the start of 2012 and sharing an office um, with him even till now when I'm in Australia, I work out of uh, Mark's office. And, you know, Gary, when I first came across him with the Tiga days and working... Um, together with him sporadically. There's been Tony Cochran in a regard who was chairman of supercars. There's been Terry Morris in, you know, his way. Um, Peter Adderton with his flamboyant style. Um, So for me, there's, you know, even with Wayne Caddock as a CEO at supercars uh, at the time and, 
you know, just working with all of these various characters, um, you know, even funny some people will say, but even the likes of a, a Gary Rogers when Gary was on the board for the Tiger board for multiple times, um, being an uber successful businessman, which uh, but having that flamboyance to him in a different regard, and uh, all of these, all of them in my formative years, let's call it, um, have been a huge influence. And then, you know, I go on to when I did Rally Australia, um, I was fortunate enough that Ben Rainsford was my chairman there and all of them at various points, um, you know, all of us have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, I don't care who you are, everyone has them. And you learn something. I've learned something from each of those people um, and still continue to learn um, from them. We've The part I think that's a good sign of it is that the majority, well, pretty much all of them, um, I still keep in contact with, probably not as much as we'd both like in any of them, but we keep in contact and they've all, you know, probably this is the first time they'd be hearing it, but all of them have had an amazing influence on my life um, and on my on my career. Scafey says even now, mate, and I'm sure there are days where... Uh, either the pure hours you have to put in or the politics or the strenuous nature of what you're dealing with. You're dealing with elite level sport, business. That must take its toll on on you. But he says you never lose your passion for motor racing. At the core of it is this just immense love for it. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, it's true. And, like, you know, Mark... uh Mark's probably seen me, particularly last year, if you look at the start of it... uh, I was dovetailing in. I did all of the supercar events uh, last year as the deputy race director to Tim Schenken, who, you know, in a race director capacity, um, has is um, not only an amazing support, um, a fantastic mentor and teacher, um, but importantly, a friend. Um, so. You know, there was last year, and Mark's right, it was a tough year doing all of the supercar events. I did, I think, seven or eight Formula One events as the um, deputy race director to Charlie. And, yeah, it it has an impact, um, but each day's a new day, yeah. and uh, <laughs> you strive on. And, yeah, I'm very passionate about what I do. I think the part that Mark's probably been um, quite influential is the attention to detail, which we can both attest to, um, and, you know, that passionate side of it. We, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, one part with Mark is that he is one of the most, still to this day, um, even in business, one of the most passionate, focused... um, individuals that I've ever met um, you know a lot of people only see the public side of Mark or have ever seen the public side of Mark um, but I'm fortunate enough that he Tony um, Mitch Mia and Tilly being the family um, are amazing friends and you know he is a truly genuine mate that's there at all hours as needed that's why he's won so many Bathurst and Championships because he has that attention to detail, that incredible um, passion to do it at 110%. <clears throat> you have 
from my observations, a, a, a great trait, Michael, and, and that is you work collaboratively with people. I, you know, I, I don't know anyone who has a bad word to say about you. And at the same time, you're, you're playing in a game that requires conviction. You have to have conviction when it comes to some of those decisions. That's a real tightrope to walk, to keep that, that garnered respect that you've worked so hard for and yet still be strong enough to, to deliver those things. That's not easy done, but, but I sense in you that a lot of that is your, your ability to work with all these, these diverse characters. Oh, 100%. It's, um, you know, if, a, if you want a microcosm of the uh, world working in elite <laughs> sport, not just motorsport, but elite sport, but, you know, be it supercars previously, Formula One now, um, you've got some not just ultra, but I'd say uber successful businessmen. You've got some of the major corporations in the world um, and, you know, some amazing athletes. They're not just drivers. They are truly athletes involved. And then you've got, um, you know, the politics that happen behind the scenes. And, yeah, it's... It's a tough tightrope to walk. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but one of the things that I did in my... I've tried to always do is, you know, work with all the key people, but there's got to be a time where, guess what, The you've just got to make a decision, stick to your decision, um, and hard, be hard, um, but be fair. And, you know, in the Formula One world this year, it's been a massive learning experience for me um, because whilst, you know, you've got all your grounding and everything with what you've done previously, um, it is to a, a complete other level, um, which is, you know, I always... You always know that it is, um, but until you experience it, um, it's very hard to describe We'll get to some of the, the yeah. aspects of this in, in, in a second. I, I want to finish a, a little bit of your Australian career before the international stuff with, I mean, you've talked a little bit about supercars and working with the Confederation of Australian Motorsport, even the Motorsport Foundation, helping the yes. likes of Scott Pye and Joey, Joey. Mawson and, and people like that. Uh, supercars, naturally, is, is on, the, on the CV there. But you've got diversity there as well. You highlighted one of them a moment ago. I mean, even, even rallying, it's not just circuit racing that is the standout thing on your on your CV, is it? Uh, no, um, not just circuit racing. So when I was working for CAMS, uh, so I moved from supercars as the assistant operations manager um, for the supercars championship um, and running at the time what was the Fujitsu series, um, now the, uh, the Dunlop um, Super 2 series and moved to CAMS in um, March 08. Uh, was involved actually, funnily enough, in the first Singapore Grand Prix in 2008 as a member of the CAMS international training team. Um, but then in 2000, late 08, uh, there was a desire from CAMS to reinvigorate Rally Australia and um, move it to the East Coast. So I had some friends who I'd grown up with in, um, in Western Sydney, in Fairfield, uh, who were um, working within the government. And I just asked them for who would be the best person to speak to um, about 
you know, getting an introduction because at the time, Events New South Wales had just been established, which is now Destination New South Wales, and got to... So with my son, remember it clearly, myself, Gary uh, Connolly and Graham Fountain going to Sydney to do a presentation to Events New South Wales about having Rally Australia um, because a deal had been done between Australia and New Zealand uh, to share effectively the event on a one one year off um, with Repco sponsorship. And we very quickly came to an arrangement with the New South Wales government um, and through events New South Wales at the time to have Rally Australia 2009 in Moolumba. And so, you know, between the three of us being myself, Gary and Graham, uh, got that deal across the line and for the 09 event, um, I went up to Moolumba for whatever it was, two months um, to effectively help run the super special stage at the time, which was the Speed on Tweed mm-hmm. uh, course. Yeah. And a um, mutual friend of ours, Rob Van Leeuwen and I, who had been involved in motors, well, in rallying, particularly in Western Australia for a number of years, uh, lived together in Kingscliff <laughs> in a rented house. So it was the... Uh, it was the odd couple of me doing the cooking and Rob washing the dishes for two months. And you were, am I right in saying you were effectively kind of GM there? You were hands-on with everything in, in many respects, weren't you? Uh, yeah, in 09, it was very much still doing my, my CAMS role, but being up there. And then uh, in 2011, um, once I came back from the Korean Grand Prix and setting that up, no doubt go into that separately, I moved to Coffs Harbour in 2011 uh, as the CEO of... Rally Australia for the first time um, on the Coffs Coast. So that was that was an intense eleven months. <laughs> yeah. In that CEO role, were there you know did you have to venture off and do other learnings for that side of your skill set, or was it purely that you'd you'd done enough hands on things over time that you you knew what to do in that role? Um, it was it was very much had to learn on the go. On the go, okay. um, you know it was. I had probably some of the, the key elements that I had learned previously. Some of them I hadn't even realised I had learned, to be quite honest. Uh, but again, I was fortunate. I had a fantastic board of Rally Australia to rely upon. Um, so there was, you know, Ben Rainsford was my chairman. Um, Andrew Papadopoulos, the pr- president of CAMS, was on the board. Um, a gentleman by the name of Don Davies, who was a lawyer in Brisbane, who's still on there, um, who knew how things sort of happened. Um, Stephen Found, who was the representative of the New South Wales government, who owns um, the theatre at the Star in Sydney, who comes from an entertainment background. Uh you know, representatives from the Coffs Harbour Council and it was probably a mixture of everything that I'd learned from all my previous lives um, that I brought together. But, you know, I, re- I remember very clearly once I moved up early January and uh, Ben Rainsford, who was the chairman, came up and uh, his one key criteria as chairman said, he has, I have a no-surprise policy, good, bad or indifferent, tell me as it is you know, and at least that way we can work together on resolving it um, and you know that's probably something that I've taken forward um, which each, with each of the teams that I've worked with is that it's better to know what's going on than it come back and uh, and bite you in a different way of not knowing I think that's straight 
talking approach still serves you enormously well to this day. You touched on the international aspects of your career. You mentioned Macau, of course, with super touring and yeah. being here in even, even Singapore in, in its uh, formative phase and with the Confederation of Australian Motorsport helping significantly on the official side for some of the new events that have emerged in, in Asia. You based yourself in Korea for, for quite some time too, didn't you, when uh, that event um, came to be. Was that the real first connection with the likes of Herbie Blash and Charlie Whiting or it may, if, if it's not the first perhaps the the um, you know the point where that connection really became important in your world 100% without doubt um, so I on behalf of CAMS uh, had negotiated the deal with uh, the Korean motorsport governing body um, CARA and with the promoter of the Grand Prix and to effectively bring a CAMS team of officials. So you're like a conduit here, basically, are you? I I was at the time. Um, So that was part of my role at CAMS. And I think we brought in the end 145 odd CAMS officials to the inaugural Korean Grand Prix, um, which was an amazing feat in itself. But part of my role was effectively the training and the sporting side of it because whilst Korea had a motorsport history, mm. at that level it wasn't something that they had really experienced. And uh, Joe Chung, who was the president of the ASN at the time um, and also quite um, having the promoter, was an Australian-Korean. So he lived at Hampton in Melbourne for six months of the year and lived in Seoul for the other six months. Um, so did the the deal on behalf of CAMS and ultimately moved up there, I think it was May 2010, uh, to help deliver that project. And I said this to a few people after the event, um, once it was delivered, but there was a lot of rumblings in 2010 that the Korean Grand Prix wasn't going to happen. Mm. And I'll be one of those that I'll say in hindsight, neither did I. Um, Got there and the circuit would have best been a off-road jump truck course where it was and you know from just being where I was I ended up getting roped into project management um, and everything else and to touch on the point that you made it was my first um, close working relationship with Charlie and Herbie I'd met them in Melbourne uh, previously Um, Tim Schenken had introduced me it was obviously still is the clerk of the course for the Australian Grand Prix Um, so I'd met both of them each of the years but yeah the big one was 2010 and you know I think come about July that year um, I was delivering weekly progress reports to Charlie and uh, to the FIA president Jean Todd uh, on what was happening um, at the event because it was a big one and you know yes ultimately it happened but yeah working with Charlie um for all of those, you know, it was a tough time. Um, no, he was he was just brilliant, brilliant to work with. He, he was very good to you, I know that, and, and um, you did a lot together. Mm-hmm. How did you? Um, what was the first call where he he or, or perhaps it was someone else in the FIA decided to to bring you closer to that international family and get you more involved on the international side of the sport, having done so much in in Australia and this part of the world? Um, it's probably a couple of different areas. So part of, um, you know, in recent years, part of my various 
contract roles that I had been doing, part of my CAMS role was to help with the international training and regional training that CAMS were doing either directly or together with the FIA. So uh, I'd been involved in various projects from that side of, you know, be it in uh, delivering regional training in Korea for all of the Asia-Pacific governing bodies uh, to, you know, um, Nepal um, and... Massive earthquake, I think, when you were there too, wasn't there? uh, Yeah, it was... But the day the earthquake hit, I was presenting. I was actually literally standing up in a room in Kathmandu when the earthquake hit. And uh, if I President Jean Todd was there with Michelle Yeoh, his partner, um, Graham Stoker, the FIA deputy president, was there. And that was, you know, it was an extremely tragic, sad time. Um, you know, one of the, I think, what's well, the strongest earthquake that Kathmandu, Nepal's ever experienced. And killed thousands of people sadly but that was that was a scary day that one um so yeah there was you know that training but that training i delivered on behalf of the fia um in various forms um so to speak and then part of it with my deputy race director role in supercars and having worked in sort of the race control element for so long in supercars was that in uh, 2018, start of 18, the FIA uh, ran a FIA race director seminar, which was then coupled with the FIA stewards um, seminar. So uh, supercars and cams agreed for me to go to the race director seminar um, together with Tim Schenken, um, Matt Selly and Chris McMahon, who are two of the Supercars permanent chairmen, um, Trevor Newman, another one of the permanent Supercars stewards, and the uh, the group of us effectively went over um, for that at the start of last year uh, and did that course in Geneva. So You aren't selling it enough because I know what you're like, but I'm told you were like top three in the world and then you had to get a, an endorsement didn't you do three events is that right to get uh, the kind of rubber stamp am I right there uh, yeah I did quite well in the stewards mm-hmm. seminar um, and part of that as part of the FIA's international training program um, I was one of those that got selected to do three different events uh, through 2018 uh, which was I did uh, the Formula E event in New York I uh, did um, Macau, the World Touring Car round last year, and a uh, Formula One trainee in Mexico. Um, so that was... Uh, that's, big, that's, that's big stage stuff, Michael. I know on the... on, Admittedly, on the the official side, the spotlight might be on the racetrack and the action happening on the racetrack, but they're, they're very important roles in those events. Did you pause for a moment and take in that you were, you were doing this stuff? They were certainly pinch yourself moments. I'll I'll be the first one to admit, but uh, you know that was sort of uh, ultimately the point that uh, that led to me being asked to be the deputy last year. Um, so, you know, I Herbie Blash, who was the longtime FIA observer and sat what we now deem as the deputy race director role, uh, was, is a member of the FIA Volunteers and Officials Commission and was at that seminar and Herbie was coming out to Australia a couple of weeks later for the Superbikes mm-hmm. um, event with his role that he does with Yamaha. 
He loves the bikes, doesn't he? He, he does love the bikes. <laughs> we call him, we joke with him and call him the Yamaha mascot. <laughs> um, but no, he's you know he's a great fan. He loves the bikes, and Herbie said, uh, you know, I'm coming out to Australia to Phillip Island um, for the Superbike event. Um, let's catch up for a bite to eat one night and. It was literally two mates catching up for dinner and he started asking about career aspirations, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. And as we both know that Herbie was probably Charlie's best friend, um, lifelong friend from when they worked together at Bravham. Mm. He employed him at Bravham. <laughs> and um, so I said to Herbie straight out, I said, well, it's quite simple ultimately my aspiration my career goal mm-hmm. as we all have goals of where we want to achieve is to succeed charlie mm-hmm. um and herbie's response was very simple he said, well, cool let's make that happen and wow. um you know in the background herbie's been an amazing support even through this year um and so that was sort of okay got left at that point, early February, mid to February, I'd call it seed planted, or it was it was uh, you know initial discussion had. Yeah, initial discussion had, and uh, so from there, the first moment, and I remember it clear as day, was Wednesday, the Wednesday of event week for the Adelaide 500, um, the supercar event, round one, sitting um, having dinner in Adelaide um, with. Tim Schenken and the stewards that night and it was about nine o'clock at night and my phone rings and look at it it's like Charlie Whiting's like hold on he's a Barcelona pre-season test what, what does he want <laughs> so yeah and um was the point of when Charlie had been told that Laurent Mekies who's now the sporting director at uh, Ferrari mm-hmm. um who was the deputy race director had resigned and was leaving to go to Ferrari and Charlie said, this is what's happened. Um, I'm going to need a deputy. Would the role be of interest to you? And it's like, well, yes. <laughs> um, don't <laughs> need to think. From a millisecond. <laughs> yes, it would be. Uh, but part of it was, and I said to him straight away that night, it would be an element of what the FIA would like because from I'd already made a commitment to supercars uh, to be... Tim's deputy for the year, and which I highlighted to Charlie. I said, you know, if it's a, a part-time, you know, trial thing or whatever it might be, then, you know, I've made a commitment to supercars. If it's something that the FIA is looking to engage full-time, mm-hmm. um, then I'll have to have some very quick discussions at this end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of... It's like, OK, leave that with me. I know you're effectively around and available um, and he said straight out he said oh, I'm speaking to I had speaking to Herbie and he suggested to ring you <laughs> so um, that was sort of the first part and probably their biggest f- frustration that night was having to go back to the dinner table and finish dinner and had to keep my mouth shut <laughs> um, so the only uh, the only one that uh, I could tell um, was I rang my mother um, and let her know so it was a, um, yeah, it was sort of a surreal moment the next morning waking up going, did I just have that conversation? And sort of, you know, when you go, when you go through your phone, you go, yep, certainly did. 
lot of young people that, that are perhaps listening to the podcast, Michael, in life now, not everyone, but, but many young kids are immediacy. They want to get there now. They want to get there fast. There were moments, I think, as you as you you know went along this varied path to get to Formula One, where there wasn't always a, a, an opening, or the opening might have taken a little bit longer to get to, and and things like that. It's also a great lesson in in um, to keep batting, mate, isn't it? You know, don't don't give up on that um, on that mission. And sometimes, if it takes you to the left, so you go, so you can come back to the right. That that's if you do it right, that's it's a good thing. Isn't it? Yeah, I think the big part for me is. Um, being true to yourself mm. and don't be afraid to take different paths. Mm. Um, you know, yes, we all like the uh, the nice straight road, straight pathway to get it done here now immediately. Um, but, you know, looking back in hindsight that, you know, it has been a meandering river. It has had its twists and turns and ups and downs and... Um, sacrifices along the way and yeah it's don't give up I think is the big part you know I've always had everyone should have a goal everyone should have an aspiration don't be afraid if you don't achieve it immediately Um, and that's been you know probably the biggest life lesson for me and going back to those various mentors that I've discussed earlier is it just with each of them it's you just it's a never give up attitude. Um, if one door closes, another one opens. If one door's slammed in your face, guess what? Another one will ultimately be opened and welcoming. Um, you know, and yeah, I've. I don't necessarily take the uh, the no for an answer, um, and try and find. Have tr- tried to find different paths to do things, but the one uh, that. I try to continue to achieve is to be me, um, you know, and continue to try to be the best in myself that I can. And, you know, I've said to a lot of people that if what I do is not good enough, one thing I'm going to rest assured of is that I know within myself that I tried and did the best that I could do. And as long as you do the best that you can do, um, I don't think you should be disappointed. Sometimes those goals may not be achieved immediately. Um, but with some luck stands you in good steed for the future. The Singapore Grand Prix takes place on the Marina Bay Street Circuit and was the inaugural night race and first street circuit in Asia. 2019 has been a huge year for you. Mm-hmm. It began in very sad circumstances in many respects at, at Albert Park in Australia. We've talked in the podcast so far about Charlie Whiting who was an incredible, irreplaceable figure in many respects in Formula One. He had been race director for as long as I can remember. You talked before about him working for Brabham the race team uh, back in the day as well. He had this unbelievable um, ability to, in his race director role and many other roles that he does or did, to um, to garner the respect that, uh, of everyone in the paddock. You were driving to work on race weekend. You had a, a great relationship with him and you had to go to 
the hotel to pick him up, mate, didn't you? And we. Yeah, so uh, what actually happened was um, we got there and uh, Charlie's famous words were, if uh, you're on time, you're five minutes late. Um, and it was that was always his adage that he was always at least five minutes early. So we were due to leave the hotel at quarter past seven that morning. Uh, and it was going to be myself, Chris Bentley and Charlie going in because we had a stewards uh, teleconference with the four permanent chairmen. Effectively, the first briefing of the year, they happen every four events. So just getting the four chairmen on the phone to discuss what was going to happen. And come quarter past, I got there about five past seven, um, waiting in the foyer and Chris and I, with Chris arrived a few minutes later, it's quarter past seven and sort of like... Well, we knew that um, the pre- FIA president was coming to town. I was like, okay, he might have got caught on the phone with the Jean being with the Jean being in town. Um, then, sort of twenty past seven comes, and it's like, mm, I'll, I'll send him a text message um, because he was pretty good at responding at those um, and knowing he had a read receipt on his messages. So, sort of five minutes later. That didn't get responded to, so Chris tried to ring him. Um, phone didn't answer, and the two of us sort of going, there's something not right here. So at that point, we uh, called our doctors, um, Dr Ian Roberts and Dr Elaine Chandigra, who's a med- FIA medical delegate and FIA deputy medical delegate, and said something's not right with Charlie. Can you come down? Um, we didn't know what it was. And uh, once Elaine and Ian went up there. Um, the first group of us effectively went to the circuit, but I think we all knew in our heart of hearts it wasn't it wasn't good. Mm. And, yeah, internally the news came through to us, you know, ten minutes later that um, Charlie had passed um, in his sleep. And obviously from our end... Um, couldn't say boo to anyone um not even you know outside of our sort of core smaller group that was there when it happened um couldn't say anything even to the rest of the FIA team uh until you know everyone generally had been advised uh you know how did you feel Michael because this is among the mentors, another one who played a very significant, you know, part in where you've where you've ended up, mate. Did you have time to process that? Because it was a crazily, it would turn out to be a crazily busy weekend for you, and at the same time, a huge loss. Yeah, I was. Um, I probably had a moment um, when, you know, that morning I uh, literally went and found a corner effectively at Albert Park there's no one else around um, and broke down um, and just it was one of those I actually knew that uh, mum was in Melbourne so I called her just to let her know I said this is what's happened um, and did she help? did she say something? oh she was as shocked as any of us um, you know 
I remember myself and Colin Hayward uh, travelled back with Charlie the night before to the hotel uh, and, you know, saw him in reception. He had a... Um, we said, right, cool, we'd plan the next day what was going to happen, even planned dinner on the Thursday night. Um, said, OK, cool, so I sort of left it at that. Um, so everything... It's like, yep, this is what's going to happen in very Charlie fashion. This time we're doing this, this time we're doing this, and bang, 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 to the point that uh, dinner was methodical. It's like, yep, we're going to this restaurant, we'll leave at this time, there shouldn't be too much happening. So it was like very, very Charlie, organised, structured. Um, and so, but yeah, mum was, you know, mum was his, and huge amazing support and just said just chill and yeah that morning was was tough we even had you know team managers coming up because there's certain time frames of the briefing notes being distributed and elements like that and team managers sort of coming up in their stroppy okay why haven't we got our notes what's wrong and it's like uh, that was, you know, by that time, 11 o'clock and 11, 11.30 in the morning. And it's like, guys, just been a bit of a delay. Um, Charlie's unwell. Um, and we're just trying to get some few things together. And, yeah, it was, I think, give or take, it was about midday that day that um, the public note of information went out uh, that um, yeah he had uh, he had passed so I mean everyone at the understandably at the Australian Grand Prix that day in, in Melbourne you know, everyone was talking about it how much did he mean to you and, and how significant was that that passing oh, oh, huge like you know let's be honest he ultimately gave me my chance to work in Formula One. Um, end of story. That's you know, there have been very other various others that involved in various parts, but you know, he was not only a mentor and gave me my chance, but um he was a he was a friend. Like um, you know, just sitting there at night chatting about random stuff. <laughs> to be quite honest, it was far from chat about uh, motorsport in the evening. It was, you know, his family, his kids, holidays, um, what's the latest movies you've watched on planes and all of that. And he was just... He was a, a really humble individual whose work ethic was just undescribable would be the best way. The scope and amount of work um, that he did was even to this day you sort of go that's superhuman stuff uh, you know everyone says it, of what it's like in the role that I've done filling those shoes and it's quite simple those shoes were an individual pair made for one that will never ever be filled um, you know and I actually said this to Charlie a couple of times last year I said for me it's not that you know, the theme of talking about, of you know, like in supercars when I was, you know, 
plan as the successor to Tim. Mm. In the discussions I had with Charlie when there was a couple of us sharing the role last year with myself and Scott Elkins, the Formula E um, race director, said, Charlie Restrought, no one will replace Charlie Whiting. It will be a new ra- Formula One race director will be appointed um, and, you know, the role may be split in various regards, but and they will do elements in their own way. Um, but the big part will be that I'm replaceable, and he will. He is irreplaceable. That's, I think even I've read some quotes that Herbie said the same thing, and it's true. Um, so, yeah, Melbourne, Melbourne Thursday was Melbourne Thursday, but then the entire weekend, um, yeah, was... Had to sort of sit back on Monday and... Is this actually real? And honestly, it took probably a few events saying, well, he's actually, he really isn't here. You know, the Melbourne weekend was like, oh, okay, he's he's unwell, he's at the hotel. You know, in the back of your mind, you know what's forefront, what's going on, but yeah. You are doing an amazing job, mate, and you, at that time, uh, I would think in his honour picked it up and ran with it and you were you were given the opportunity to be the race director in, in Melbourne and, and um, I would imagine the days that followed it's the opportunity that you were striving for that you would like but at the same time they were very difficult circumstances to, to take the reins and yet it's an honour at the same time isn't it knowing that you, you had to do that for me Yeah, Melbourne was you know I won't sugarcoat it in any way, shape or form. Melbourne was tough. Uh, you know, it was an honour that uh, was completely supported and we were, you know, it's ironic in some regards how these things happened. Um, we had the FIA president, Jean Todd, was in Melbourne um, for the Grand Prix this year. The FIA deputy president was in Melbourne. Um, unplanned, the FIA director of communications was in Melbourne for the Grand Prix. Uh, so all of sort of the senior FIA hierarchy, let's call it, who normally would not be at an event, were and were in the country. So, you know, there was the element of, thank God that they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and come Thursday, you know, myself and Colin Haywood, who uh, is the now Deputy Formula One Race Director in has been working, I think. He told me the other day this is uh, Grand Prix number 299 for him working in the FIA. Um, delivered the team manager's meeting in Melbourne and we cobbled together a draft from the previous year's notes um, within that sort of that hour from 12 till 1 and just went to the team manager's meeting. The two of us delivered it and was quite open and said, guys, we need your help. If there's anything missing, whatever, mm. let's just work together. work together to get through this. And you know, all of the team managers, the sport being the sporting directors, um, were unbelievable because in, at that point um, the president had made a decision on what was going to happen and that happened late uh, Thursday afternoon when he arrived um, because he was in other parts of Australia doing elements with uh, automobile clubs and so forth. So he arrived and uh, we had, a, you know, he briefed the entire FIA team with all of our contractors. Mm. 
and then we had a further meeting um, with a smaller group of us um, and went through and uh, Ross Braun obviously is the managing director of motorsport for F1 group was there together with Steve Nielsen the F1 sporting director and you know went through and said this is the plan for the weekend subject to his approval where um, either I would fill the race director role Colin to fill the deputy function uh, and Colin's other functions of, as the race control systems manager um, we had some of our contractors from SVG software and from Riedel that could help with those and it's like okay fine okay with that um, and then the stewards obviously had to make their various changes documentation wise and you know, with the president's support the support of Ross um, Braun and you know we ultimately ended up having Steve Nielsen the sporting director sitting there with us at the end who had been the long time uh, sporting director at Williams previously uh, who was sitting there to sort of provide a, an extra set of hands from a, a team perspective um, that weekend and you know just having that background and yeah we got uh, got through the weekend and you know from that event that the part that in our team meeting that I said to the entire FIA team on the Sunday morning um, I said to them, if this is the only Grand Prix that I do as the race director um, one I couldn't be more proud of the way that they all pulled together um, and the way that we all they all supported each other but their support of me effectively as the junior you know we're talking about people that have done two three four hundred grands prix and there's michael who did eight <laughs> um in perspective so you know this is the only event i do with you i couldn't be more proud of the way that they did everything um and then you know it was come monday i'll, I'll say i'll be the first i think all of us did that the adrenaline Stopped, which is what gets you through something like that. And did you just collapse? How did you feel? Oh, I fell in a heap on the old couch at home. I can tell you, it was, um, yeah, it was, you know, the first moment that I'd sort of had to sit down, process a little bit of it, what had actually occurred. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it's a mentally draining time. I, so, yeah. We fast forward to Singapore where you and I are sitting here now. Yep. You are race director and have done for 15, 15 rounds, which is amazing, mate. A um, lot of learnings in, in all of that. And then there's, there's um, been some tough moments along the way. But the common thing people keep telling me is what a great job you are doing. And you have brought a bit of your own moniker to it as well, I think. I mean, the the greater presence of... The bad sportsman flag is almost a bit of an Australian thing. We have this. You and Craig Baird and others have worked in yep. in supercars and and had this play on approach. You've tried to ensure that that wherever possible, um, minimise the the stuff that happens um, in, in race and try and let the the combatants play on. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a few elements to that. There was a number of years ago, I think it was 2017, um, 
the principle of let them race yeah. um, was the phrase that keeps coming out. And we had a meeting with uh, all of the drivers and the sporting directors in Bahrain after the drivers' meeting uh, to get their understanding uh, for our benefit of what does let them race mean? What is the big ticket items for them? And that was sort of where the pathway started because I was obviously appointed for Bahrain, but it was a one-off and then continued event by event. But, um, yeah, there's the play-on approach. I can't say I'll take... I can't take full credit for it. It's been very much a, a true partnership between us all. And between us all, I mean um, with from the top of the FIA, being with the president, um, and then at all levels, including with our stewards, then having, you know, our key partners in the Formula One group, the teams and the drivers. And, you know, the part of it was trying to find out with the bad sportsmanship flag, the black and white, why it stopped being used. Because whilst we call it, um, you know, we've been around in Australia, I think most other motorsport people are aware that it's used at all levels. It's used regularly, club all the way through to the World Endurance Championship and others. Uh, You know, even speaking to Anthony Davison, who does the World Endurance Championship, and he said, oh, the black and white flag. He said, you'd think that it's a new thing in some areas of the media, but we're that used to seeing it in the WEC. uh, So... Yeah, it was sort of trying to work out and getting back to an understanding of why it stopped being used. Mm-hmm. And then with the support of everyone using it, it's it's your it's a warning flag. It's one of the it's called one of the tools in a race director toolbox that you have at your disposal. And so after doing all the investigations, we made a decision that from Spa onwards, the first event after the summer break, mm-hmm. um, that advise the drivers and the teams that we would use it. Um, so all it is, it's actually no different to what's happened before, um, contrary to what a lot of people think. Previously, it was a one-on-one warning. Mm. So we have an intercom system with each of the teams and with Charlie's reign or even earlier in the year, um, this year with me, I used to give advise the team directly that that's Aye. a warning mm. effectively elbows are too far out, tuck them in. And all it now is, and I think the comment, I heard a comment the other day from someone saying that it's, you know, a more transparent way of doing it. And that was my view of why should it just be a one-on-one warning when everyone can know that we've seen it and that driver's been warned. So it's, it's just a different way of dealing with something we already dealt with, but um, with a a very different outcome, let's call it. When you arrive at a, at a race weekend, I think in, in Singapore where you got on, may have been on Tuesday night or Wednesday before the race that you you arrived, it's probably very difficult to say in a handful of words what the race director role is because you, you're busy right across the, the weekend. But if you had to sum it up for someone who wasn't a motor racing person, how would you describe the, the title, the role? Uh, interesting one. <laughs> it's multifaceted. To be quite honest, there's I'm the Formula One race director uh, and the safety delegate. So in the safety delegate capacity, there's the 
track inspections, um, looking at the circuit, making sure that all of the safety installations, uh, working with the the clerk of the course and the local officials to make sure recovery um, and all of the trackside marshals, flag marshals and everything is all set, working with our medical uh, delegate and deputy medical delegate to make sure that all the medical side... Probably one way to put it is, at an event, the race director role, in a broad sense, is the team manager of the FIA team. Uh, But then once you get into the on-track components... uh, your the race director role is one of consistency so you're there to do effectively your i'll call it the clerk of the course is the circuit expert and knows their officials the race director knows the sporting regulations and you know dealing with the teams and is the continuity is the consistency from one event to the next from a sporting end to make sure things happen in exactly the same way so from you know it's called ultimate decision to display the red flag and stop a session uh, to have a safety car intervention have a virtual safety car intervention uh, review incidents that might happen um, on track not only from if drivers are at you know generally is there something to look at and then referring that to the stewards to investigate so contrary to popular belief the race director role doesn't actually issue any penalties um that is all penalties are issued and incidents investigated by the stewards i will review them and suggest that they might have a look at them but they can absolutely look at them of their own volition at any point in time um so it's a a multifaceted role and then you have the other element of dealing with sporting managers running a team managers meeting um and dealing with things that happen at the last event this event future events future planning and then working uh you know running the drivers meeting and getting input from the drivers on various elements as the year has gone on and you know you touched on it earlier but my approach and i've said this to a few people this is formula one event 15 for me here and you know, let's hope I get many, many more to come, but each and every event you learn something new and I think each and every person learns something new every day in their in their life and you keep learning effectively for every day that we're on this earth and from my view, I've said to the drivers quite openly, let's continue to work together and I said to the teams, let's continue to work together on achieving what we want. Um, I think the best way of putting it is A lot of people want grey areas, let's call it, when it comes to driving the the let them race approach, the play on approach to use the the Australian vernacular. Um, So everyone likes that shade of grey until it affects them. Mm. Then they want very clear black and white. (laughs) And I've said this to them all. I said, so let's rather than let's work together on defining what that shade of grey is. And, you know, that's... It's just probably my approach generally of trying to work with people. You know, there's a lot of very smart people that have been around a very long time. Um, And for me, it's probably just offering a a fresh set of eyes in looking at things in a different perspective and asking the questions of why things aren't done in different ways, Um, just as part of the learning. Some of it you say, okay, cool. Fair enough, that makes complete sense. And others, you go, okay, are there better ways of doing things? 
well done. There's been some good stuff in the press from senior Formula One people that have um, spoken glowingly about what you've done. I know you're not one to get excited about pumping your own tyres. But let's, as we go to the finish here, deal with a couple of things. Firstly, best piece of advice you were... I'm sure everyone came to you with advice going into the race director role. What was the best piece of advice and what's the biggest learning you reckon you've got? I mean, it's, the, it's one of the top jobs in international motorsport. Huge pressure. You're in the public eye in, in many respects because you're, you're the umpire and, and um, there's a lot that falls on your shoulders, Mike. Um, yeah, there is. Uh, best piece of advice in my career, probably... In one part um, was that when people try to get to obtain your view on regulations and trying to get interpretations and trying to asking questions in surreptitious ways, let's call it, um, your initial answer should always be no because it's far easier to give someone a yes later on down the track once you've had time to study and work out why they want to do something but the uh the first answer should always be no and that was from kelvin i think that originated from alan gow to be quite honest um so that was a very very good piece of advice because it's far serves, now, serves me well now um but yeah it's far easier to say yes after you've said no rather than going back the other way um another piece of advice is probably be true to yourself be yourself um and I've said to my closest mates that I've grown up with, um, if I change or have changed in any way, feel free to uh, knock me down, knock me down <laughs> well and truly as much as necessary. Um, but yeah, just being true to yourself, I think, is the big part that, you know, there are times that are going to be tough. Um, but you know, and use everything that you've learnt from all of those various people, mentors, experiences. Um, But ultimately, you're going to do things your own way. And, you know, it is a very big, big world there. You know, let's not sugarcoat it. It is the premier motorsport competition for me. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone will agree in the world. It's competitive. There is... It is big business. It's not just sport. It is huge business. Um, And you've got to try and balance all of that. Um, You know, there's egos involved and all the rest of it, but also being true to, you know, this event here. There's 900 volunteer officials who willingly give up their time. You know, in Australia, there's... A thousand odd volunteer officials at the Grand Prix, Baku, you know, 11, 1200. And these are all people that, at the other spectrum, willingly give up their time because they are passionate about the sport that I can say here that we all love. And, you know, spending time with each of them and trying, you know, I've myself and Colin have made a point wherever it's humanly possible to go and thank the officials at their briefings because without them what we have here what we all enjoy won't happen um so yeah i think being true to yourself is probably the um the biggest one and yeah i'm 
you know, I count myself as extremely fortunate. I have the support of some amazing people um, all the way through, be it personally and professionally. Um, and without that support mechanism um, as a whole, not everything's possible. John Todd is the, the top man mm-hmm. of the international governing body, the FIA. He's had experience, been very successful in the area of rallying, of course, with the Ferrari Formula One team and now in, in an administrative capacity. What's your relationship with him like? And do you get daunted when the boss <laughs> rings on the phone? Um, I'll be honest. At first, yes. Um, let's be quite clear. In Melbourne, it was I obviously met John a number of times through the various FIA training and that that I had delivered. Um, but in Melbourne and considering the circumstances, yes, it was daunting. And I'll be the first to admit that. And daunting at sub- some of the subsequent events and you know quite openly uh, I was effectively in a trial period up until the summer break um, which putting his hat on completely support because you've got to see how someone who you don't really know operates in these different circumstances and performs and performs and has the different challenges that might be thrown at them but my relationship with the president is great. He's been hugely supportive, um, particularly as the year's gone on. We've got to know each other more, both professionally and personally. Um, and, you know, when he comes into race control and sits there, be it for a few minutes or whatever, just to see what's going on, he's very much the first. Um, if there's something that he doesn't, like or doesn't understand he'll ask you personally he won't just go out there he'll say can you explain this to me of why on the other front is very much the first to say come up and say well done and you know he's been a huge supporter if there's questions or things that he'd like investigated or to get a better understanding of um, he's been there and yeah without be very honest without his support but probably the broader part that you know everyone misses is that at a formula one event within the fia side i'm just one piece of the the puzzle the team that i have around me um i've got an amazing team we all do everything together be it the technical team ultimately led by Nicholas Tambasis as the head of technical matters, but then at an event through Joe Bauer and that side of it, um, to the sporting team that effectively I lead with Colin and uh, Chris and Christian, and then, you know, the press and media team with Olivia and Tom, and, you know, there's all of those various elements. And, you know, I'm just one cog in that puzzle it's not a one-man show um and you know i think that's the part that yes ultimately at an event was made very clear and fair enough the buck stops with me um if there's any questions or whatever however i couldn't do it without each and every one of them and that's been since day one i've been fortunate enough to have colin haywood sitting by my side who 
has been sitting in race control all of those years. Um, who knows how things happen. Chris in the office, Christian Brill, who's now the permanent starter, uh, who's been around, you know, and then words of advice from the likes of Herbie, who does a welfare check, let's call it, every couple of weeks to see how things are going. And, you know, I, I just count myself as privileged to work with an amazing group of people, um, you know, even with the broader Formula 2, Formula 3 team of staff that come to the European, a lot of the events where those events are at. Um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, as the adage say, adage goes, and, you know, it's not a one-man show. Um, so, yeah, that's probably, for me, the biggest part of that Jean has realised and appreciated of how many different pieces there are and the way that we all do work together as a team. Charlie did so much, mate, and was involved in so many things. Um, the focus for you right now is is the immediate, you know, the race director role, and just just I think you're probably living in the now in that sense and making sure that that, that is the 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 focus. What about the beyond this? Have you thought long term? I mean, would you have to? Currently, I think you still reside in Melbourne, and you you come and go and. Will you have to move to Europe and things like that? Uh, yeah, well, at the moment I've got um, my roles confirmed through to the end of the year. Um, beyond that, uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, if it were to continue, there's no doubt I'll have to relocate to Europe. Um, that's that's a given. It's whilst I love Australia, all of my family and friends are there, um, it takes its toll travelling, you know, 26 hours each way for a lot of the events um, and, you know, at the end of the day, the operational hub of everything is Europe. Uh, the first part of the year and the back part of the year, you know, has its back-to-backs and so forth involved and, you know, 22 events next year, who knows what that's going to increase to beyond that. So, yeah, ultimately if things continue, we'll uh, have to move, but We'll worry about that step when we get there, but it is, yeah. It's very much living in the now from the perspective of I've got a job to do, I'll continue to do the best part, best role that I can um, and continue to work with everyone to make sure the, you know, come Abu Dhabi Sunday night when that chequered flag drops and the final results are signed off by the stewards um, that we can all look back and uh, go, you know what? Let's uh, let's have a quiet drink to say very well done. Um, and one thanks to the uh, thanks to Charlie upstairs who's been overseeing us as the uh, guardian angel all year. But well done to everyone in the team collectively for what they've achieved in you know a very tough set of circumstances that's had a huge number of challenges thrown at us throughout the year. Final one. Is there a little resto project, maybe in later life, and a little car? I don't know what it might be. A alpha that you're inspired <laughs> by from the days with Rudy. Is, is there a little something like that that one day you might like to do? And <laughs> you gave it, you've yeah. got no time to do it at the moment. I know that's the that's the the, the key. The key thing. <laughs> one day when I'll let's call it uh, much older and. Uh, <laughs> 
I can't say very grey because, as you know, I'm growing rapidly. I'm trying to catch up more I'm than you. I'm trying to catch up to you. Um, people will laugh. A Mini Cooper S. Is that right? And is it a particular year, a particular style? What have you got your Just heart to Old Mini Cooper S in the, uh, in the vermilion red with the white roof. Just always liked minis. Beautiful. Beautiful. Congratulations, mate. It's a, it's a great story that's been um, an honour to sit and to, to share. I think for people that have aspirations in motorsport, you're a reminder that it doesn't just have to be about the engineering or the driving side. There is, there is so much more to it than that. I owe you a lunch <laughs> after this, but... but Scapey's reminded me, you, you don't mind, you know, a nice French or Italian meal, but he says... You've probably still got your first dollar. You're not big on pulling out the wallet to pay for it. Is that right? <laughs> uh, coming from him, that's a big call. One would suggest uh, Sir Lunchalot himself. And uh, no, I can uh, definitely say that uh, I'm more than happy to uh, shout a good lunch. I do enjoy good food. So, uh, no, I, um, boss, yes, don't get wrong. I enjoy spending things on spending money on nice things. Do I say that I throw things away? No. But uh, we all enjoy good food and good wine. But uh, it's a bit rich coming from Sir Lunch a lot. <laughs> Top job. You're doing an, uh, a, a lot of great stuff and uh, and keep powering. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, time and uh, good to see an old mate in a different country. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.